This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Shweta, and I'm a co-host on the channel. Today, I'm joined by Professor Adam Auerbach to talk about his book, Demanding Development, The Politics of Public Goods Provision in India's Urban Slums, published by the Cambridge University Press in October 2019. Professor Auerbach is Assistant Professor at the School of International Service at American University, Washington, D.C., Now, what is it that explains that some poor communities are able to secure development from the state while others don't? His book examines this question in the context of peri-urban slums in North India, specifically in the cities of Jaipur and Bhopal, and it draws on incredibly rich ethnographic work in eight slum settlements and is also complemented by surveys and experiments in over a hundred slums in these cities. Adam Auerbach, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having It'd me. It'd be great to start off with hearing a little bit about yourself. What drew you to political science research? And how did you eventually land up in Jaipur and Bhopal to study this question of how slum settlements organize and demand development? Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's a fun, fun question to consider. Um, in terms of my interest in political science, um, I think I would really trace it back to a you know, really influential class that I took with a professor in college, uh, Mike Manius. Um, a class on the politics of South Asia um, that really got me interested in the region, um, its politics, its developmental trajectories. Um, and I think this was sort of my first you know, introduction to the region. Um, I then decided to study abroad in India my, my junior year of college um, in Jaipur, just for a semester, and we're just absolutely fascinated in, in the language um, and the culture and the, the politics, um, different social issues. Um, and so every chance that I had, you know, to get a small grant um, or, you know, language classes, you know, I jumped at the opportunity to return to India and oftentimes Jaipur um, to sort of learn further. Um, and this really sort of, you know, morphed into my, you know, enduring interest um, in the politics of India and development in India. Um, in terms of my focus on cities, um, during uh, graduate school, I think, Two different experiences, you know, really set the foundation for my interest in urban informality um, and development in India's cities. Um, the first was a graduate internship that I had at the National Institute for Urban Affairs in New Delhi. Um, I was working with a team um, of researchers um, on uh, JAN and URM, um, a ur- uh, urban development program, you know, that was really at its heights, you know, in the late 2010s. Um, and we were getting all the survey data back. Uh, from different cities in India, um, on slum settlements specifically, um, and it's uh, it really surprised me um, how sort of uh, how staggering it was um, that the developmental trajectories of settlements, um, you know, their access to water, electricity, roads, streetlights, schools, um, you know, dramatically uh, varied, um, not only across uh, cities but within cities. Um, and even municipal wards within cities, um, you know, some settlements that had emerged, you know, at the exact same time, the 1970s and early 1980s, you know, some of which just uh, simply had much more sort of public investments um, in their infrastructure and services than others. Um, then in addition to that, um, I was taking a language class um, at the, with the American Institute of Indian Studies, a Hindi language class. Um, and there was a large uh, slum settlement right behind uh, the house um, of the family that I was living with. Um, and, you know, to 
in the, this was in the eastern part of the city of Jaipur along the mountain range. Um, and to sort of be able to travel in that part of the, that corner of the city, um, you oftentimes would have to uh, go through the slum settlement. Um, and on my many sort of trips, you know, through the settlements, you know, I became acquainted with and later friends with the adyaksh of the settlements, um, sort of the Hindi word for president. Um, this was a sort of a young man, only a couple years older than myself, um, who had become the sort of major leader of that slum settlement uh, through an informal election. Um, and, you know, he had a vast range of responsibilities for residents. Again, this was all, you know, a completely informal position. You know, he had a regular sort of day job as a private school teacher, uh, but he spent considerable amounts of time um, helping residents get ration cards, BPL cards, voter ID cards, helping people um, demand water connections from the government, uh, trying to fight off eviction attempts. Uh, by the government, um, in particular by the forest department, who actually owns the land on which the slum is settled. Um, so a combination of, you know, looking at this large-scale quantitative data um, that was coming in as part of JN and URM, um, and then field-based observations in Jaipur, um, sort of, you know, led me to, um, you know, want to learn more about what what is what is generating these developmental disparities um, across these neighborhoods um, that otherwise face you know, a large number of the same vulnerabilities around informality, um, a lack of uh, private uh, uh, property rights, um, informality in terms of employment. The vast majority of residents work in India as sort of massive urban informal economy um, and have little sort of security because of it. Um, you know, these settlements are very much sort of embedded in patronage politics uh, with politicians uh, in which their sort of security on the land and their access to services is oftentimes um, you know, related to their political behavior um, and, you know, the low-income sort of nature of these settlements. You know, th th these are sort of uh, neighborhoods that house um, a vast majority of the urban poor. Um, so despite all these sort of common, common vulnerabilities across these settlements, we still see these, you know, uh, this wide unevenness um, in their ability to get basic public goods and services. Um, so this really led me to ask this question that, that later, you know, really shaped um, uh, my book itself, which is, you know, why why have some slum settlements been able to, you know, internally organize um, and demand and secure development from the state while others have failed? Right. So um, you find that in these slums, these leaders play an important role as broker between citizen and state in this claim making process. So could you tell us a little bit about who are the slum leaders and what are their characteristics? How do they emerge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, India's slum leaders are, are absolutely, you know, a, a fascinating uh, cast of political actors. Um, first and foremost, they're, they're pervasive. Um, you can almost assume, um, at least, you know, in my field visits, you know, the two years of field work that I'd spent uh, for the book in Jaipur and Bhopal, that when you enter into a settlement, um, you know, you can, you can almost assume that there will be informal leadership in that community. Um, so these actors really are widespread in their presence across settlements. Um, India's slum leaders are otherwise everyday residents. Um, the vast majority of them moved to the settlement um, and squatted in the area alongside other residents. They, um, you know, they moved from a rural area in that state or another state in India, or sometimes from another area within the city um, to look for employment and housing in that area. Um, very few of the now hundreds of slum leaders you know, in which I've, you know, interacted and interviewed, you know, had any sort of uh, political aspirations or political connections before moving to their settlement. Uh, but once they settled in that, in their, in their neighborhood, in their slum settlement, you know, the, the problems facing residents are, you know, immediate and profound. Um, they risk uh, the you know, eviction um, and, you know, the government bulldozers coming and uh, knocking down their houses. Um, there's usually a complete dearth of any sort of public goods and services. And so there usually isn't any running water at first. There's no paved roads. There's no um, drainage. Uh, there's no schools. There's no, there's no electricity. Um, and so residents face this sort of immediate imperative to organize um, and form some sort of leadership that can spearhead their efforts uh, to get things from the government. Um, and so what ends up happening in most settlements is that there's a small number of residents who have a number of features and characteristics about them that sort of give them the raw materials, um, you know, for making a good slum leader. 
so what what are those characteristics? Um, one of one is um, uh, higher levels of education than than the than the average resident. Um, in in co-authored work with um, Tarek Patel, we actually surveyed um, hundreds of these slum leaders, um, and we found systematically that uh, slum leaders um, are better educated; they're more likely to be literate. Um, they also tend to hold jobs um, that are slightly different than your everyday residents. They're much less likely to do sort of mazdoor work um, or sort of casual labor. Um, they're more likely to hold sort of small-scale, modest um, positions in the local government. So things like clerks um, or security guards um, or municipal sweepers. Again, very modest jobs, but it provides them some degree of connectivity uh, to the local government. They're also more likely to be things like shopkeepers, um, you know, owning a kirana dukan, you know, a general store, um, somebody selling, you know, chai in a chai shop in that area. Um, and that is because it sort of puts them in a, in, into a central focal point um, of social interaction in the neighborhood. You know, those are the areas where people are sort of milling about and they get to know the slum leader. The slum leader ends up getting many connections. Um, these are all the sort of, you know, these connections, education. Um, and other things that are much more difficult to measure, things like charisma um, and courage uh, before politicians and officials. So there'll be some residents that have these characteristics and other residents are start to gravitate towards them, you know, because they have that ability to write the petition, uh, to navigate the local states, you know, to bring, you know, a written petition or a claim uh, to a government official or a politician to ask things for the settlements, uh, to fight back against eviction. So usually, again, these processes happen very quickly at the beginning of um, sort of the, the lifespan of the settlement. Um, and over time, um, you know, the, the prominence, the, the namchin, the social sort of prominence of these, of these uh, residents crystallizes into this informal position of the busty um, neta um, or the slum leader. Um, and so they're, they're acknowledged as such, um, although, again, they're sort of everyday residents. Um, you know, slum leaders get, um, you know, material spoils, uh, for the activities that they, they engage in. Uh, when they, at, when they help somebody get a ration card or a voter ID card, oftentimes, you know, they're charging small amounts of money for it, you know, which they see as compensation for their time, you know, spent in government offices helping the resident get that good or service. Um, they get, um, uh, patronage from political parties. Um, as I discussed in the book, Many slum leaders become party workers or party karta, um, where they get an actual position in a party organization. So in my case, either the, um, the Congress party or the BJP that places them in these, um, hierarchically arranged uh, political party networks. Um, and as such, they're expected during elections to mobilize residents uh, to vote for their party. Um, so they get, you know, uh, you know, patronage money, um, in particular from parties to do these activities. Um, but one thing that, you know, I was constantly reminded of during my field work, um, in my several years of field work for the book, um, was that, you know, these, because they are everyday residents that are living with their families in the settlements, you know, they too want paved roads. You know, they want electricity. Um, they want a school for their children to go to. You know, they want clean running water. Um, for their own sake, because they are residents of the settlements, um, and they're not sort of placed there by political parties. Um, and so they're, yeah, again, you know, very sort of, you know, fascinating and, and unique political actors. When we talk about uh, leaders of marginalized communities and them acquiring some political heft, there's the inevitable question of cooptation versus representation, whether they continue to best represent the interests of their communities or whether they merely serve the interests of their political leaders. Now, clearly that's not the case. The latter is not the case. You're finding that the Islam leaders seem to have a stake in everyday problem solving. Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a really important question. I mean, a, a large sort of thrust of the literature in political science um, on these types of actors, you know, often renders them as sort of the, the local elites, you know, that will, that will capture, you know, development, um, you know, resources for themselves. Um, you know, many of these things go hand in hand um, in terms of the infrastructural development of the community and the personal enrichment of slum leaders and the political gains of, of political parties. Um, and one of the things that underpins this is, um, and this is a major sort of mechanism that I outline in my book, the vast majority of settlements have multiple slum leaders. Um, and 
to maintain this position of the bustinator or slum leader, you have to continue to demonstrate efficacy in getting things done for people. Um, you know, much unlike sort of popular accounts of slum leaders, you know, and things in you know in movies like Slumdog Millionaire or the book Shantaram, um, you know, these slum leaders do not really rest on muscle power and coercion to stay in power. Um, they really have to demonstrate that they're they're able to get things done and that they they can draw on political connections to get things for individual residents and their neighborhood more generally. Um, if they fail to, um, or they start transgressing on residents, um, residents have you know considerable autonomy to switch their support to another slum leader, um, and that new slum leader that absorbs that um, support will now be the new sort of beneficiary of this you know sh- uh, stream of fees that they get for helping residents get things. They become popular in the settlements and parties have a very close awareness of who is and who is not popular in the settlements. Um, and so those, those slum leaders who are popular um, are more able to attract um, you know, party resources, uh, particularly during elections. But to get all of these goodies um, and to gain political prominence, you really have to demonstrate again, um, you know, your ability to um, secure development goods uh, for the community itself. Um, and so this, um, to a large degree, sort of gu- guards against sort of, you know, unmitigated capture, um, you know, by by these actors where, you know, res- res- residents are getting, you know, absolutely nothing um, and they're sort of capturing, you know, everything themselves. Um, and political parties, again, they have, great incentives to lean on popular slum leaders um, because uh, slum leaders who are popular are better able to mobilize uh, residents for, you know, rallies and election time, you know, activities. And of course, you know, voting um, on election day itself. Um, So all this work through this sort of competitive mechanism where, you know, if you're a resident in the community and you're aspiring to be a slum leader or, or you are already a slum leader, you really need to make sure that you, you know, you, you know, you, uh, keep on your toes um, because once you start to slip, um, you know, residents can really sort of go elsewhere. Um, and this, this is, you know, related to another, you know, major theme that I try to, you know, underscore in several parts of the book. And that is, you know, there's a large literature in political science um, on a phenomenon called clientelism, um, where, you know, poor voters in particular are locked into dependency relationships with political patrons and their local brokers, um, and they're sort of forced to vote um, in a certain way, or they're sort of cut off from gaining access to state services. Um, what I find in India slums, and, and these should be areas where we would most expect these kinds of you know, voters that are highly constrained, um, that uh, residents of India slums have considerable um, political autonomy. Um, and this manifests itself in many different ways, um, from you know, high percentages um, of um, slum residents who are swing voters. So sometimes they vote for the BJP and sometimes they vote for the Congress. Uh, more than a third of the voters, um, you know, in my survey, um, expressed being swing voters. Um, and it's, it's likely to be more. Um, it's also manifest in things like, um, neighborhood associations. Most of the settlements that I've encountered, um, again, in Jaipur and Bhopal, um, have a Kachi Basti Vikasamiti or a slum development association. Um, and these are neighborhood associations, much like the ones that have been documented in middle-class areas of India cities um, that, that are created by residents. Um, they're formally registered with the municipality or the state government. Um, they have you know, their own letterhead stationery um, and they're used to write petitions um, for, um, for public goods and services. Um, and because of this sort of competitive selection mechanism where, you know, if you're an everyday resident, you have a considerable amount of leverage over who you decide to go to for help and who to follow um, in terms of the slum leaders existing in your settlements. Because of that, um, you know, the urban poor are really sort of central to the creation um, of informal leadership, that informal leaders are not imposed on them, you know, from above. They emerge from within the communities based on resident support. Um, and so, you know, through all of these different, um, you know, sort of processes, you know, your everyday residents, um, you know, has a lot of power um, over over these informal leaders. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think this really sort of fundamentally shapes the, the political economy of these communities and pushes the image of the community away from uh, the sort of stereotypical 
um, you know, uh, urban poor laborer, um, you know, who does not have a great deal of control over, you know, the politics around them. That's, uh, that's quite fascinating. The, the picture you paint is one of intense competition in these slums and not at all the oft-imagined picture of slums as clientelistic bastions, as, as uh, simply passive vote banks of, of you know, people who, can, who vote en masse and whose votes can be bought quite cheaply. But uh, it does seem like the, uh, the residents uh, are actively creating the political landscape of the settlements. And um, and you find that uh, the explanation of in inter intersettlement differences in how the slum leaders are kind of boils down to the political organization in these settlements, uh, right? Could you could you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd be happy to outline the sort of central argument of the book. Um, so yeah, again, you know, there's this there's a large literature you know on these actors called political. Um, you know, who serve in this intermediary role between voters and the state. Um, and my book, too, you know, very much focuses on uh, slum leaders, in particular party workers, those slum leaders that have received a position in a party. Um, these positions are limited, um, and it places them in these political organizations that link them, you know, in their individual little alleyway in the settlements up with the highest levels of uh, party leadership in the city. Um, so I, I'll, in, in explaining my argument, I'll, I'll increasingly use the term party worker. But what I mean by that is slum leaders, um, you know, residing in these settlements um, who are formally part of a party organization um, and thus have these sort of upward linkages uh, to political elites. So what I find is that um, across settlements, there's incredible variation in the density and partisan balance of party worker networks. So what I mean by density is very simply the sort of the per capita number of these party workers. So in some slum settlements, when you walk in, there will be absolutely no party workers. There may be a few slum leaders, but there's no one in the settlement who actually is part of a party organization and has received a, um, a party position, a PUD in Hindi, um, that, that puts them in this sort of vertical structure of a party network. There are other settlements um, that are completely flush with these actors. Every single alley alleyway that you go down, you'll find a party worker with one of these positions, um, and there's no ambiguity about their position. Um, oftentimes, on their door, there'll be a painted lotus flower, you know, which is a, the symbol of the BJP party, um, a open hand, the symbol of the Congress party. Um, so some of these settlements are completely flush with these party workers. Um, and others are sort of somewhere in between um, in terms of the density of these actors. Um, there's also interesting variation across settlements um, in terms of the partisan balance of those actors. So in some communities, all the party workers will be for the Congress party. In other communities, all the party workers will be for the BJP. Most settlements um, have some degree of um, inter-party representation among their, among their party workers. So there's some BJP workers and there's some Congress party workers competing over the same voters within the same neighborhood. So what I find in the book is that the density of these party workers um, is positively associated um, with a range of public goods and services. Um, so why is this? Well, I find um, sort of three distinct mechanisms that link the density of party workers um, to outcomes and community development. The first is, Slums with dense party work, worker networks um, have stronger mobilizational capacity. When there's a big problem in the settlement, um, you know, the monsoon rains come and wash away the road, the electricity line falls down. Um, there's growing awareness that there might be an upcoming eviction push. Um, that because these party worker networks are in that settlement, um, they can mobilize residents um, and get them out onto the streets to, to protest or engage in something that I refer to in the book as group-based claim-making, which is getting a group of residents together to go to the politician's office or to go to the bureaucrat's office uh, to demand you know, um, that public good or service or demand protection from eviction. Um, and these group-based activities are really important because they signal shakti or people power. Um, those settlements that have you know, very thin or absent um, party worker networks 
they have much weaker mobilizational capacity. They don't have that party infrastructure um, to rally residents, um, to, to get them out on the streets and protest to advance their material interests. Secondly, um, those settlements with dense party worker networks um, have multiple points of upward political connectivity. Um, if there are multiple nodes um, in the settlements um, of people who can take the issues of the settlements to different political actors in the city um, because of their close connections with them through the political party. Um, in those settlements, you know, with weak or absent um, party worker networks, um, these sort of upward, you know, connections um, are, are either absent um, or, you know, relatively weak. Third, in those settlements with dense party worker networks, um, there's really intense competition among those party workers for a following. Um, in settlements with sort of thin or absent party worker networks, again, there's there's less competition um, because there's simply less, there's fewer party workers competing with one another um, over gaining the support of residents within the communities. Um, and so these different mechanisms sort of collide with one another um, to uh, produce this result that, um, you know, those, those settlements with dense party worker networks um, tend to be sort of better able to demand or development than those with sparse or absent party worker networks. Um, so in the book, um, I rely on both um, 15 months of ethnographic fieldwork um, in eight case study communities um, and a original survey across uh, 111 some settlements um, and just over 2,500 residents um, across those 111 settlements. And what I find is both sort of quantitative and qualitative evidence that party worker density is associated with higher percentages of paved road coverage, um, uh, more streetlight coverage, um, higher rates of municipal trash collection, um, uh, higher incidence of government medical camps uh, being provided to the settlements. Um, you know, and of course, there's there's many factors um, involved in the development of these communities. Um, Land ownership categories, is the settlement owned by the, the central government, the state government, is it private land? Um, what percentage of residents actually have a, a land title um, in terms of the strength of property rights? Is the settlement notified, um, which is a, a category um, in which the government has officially recognized the area as a slum settlement, granting it some protection from eviction? Um, and then other sort of factors like the voting patterns of residents, um, things like social capital, um, the degree of trust and reciprocity among uh, residents of the community. So there, there's lots of these different factors. Um, and I measure and, you know, test for these alternative explanations um, in the book. Um, but even after sort of accounting for these other factors, the density of these party worker networks um, remain, you know, really important um, in driving a lot of the, the divergences and development across the communities. Um, you know, and as your question suggests, you know, th this, of course, begs the question, well, where do these party worker networks come from? Why are some settlements um, much more flush with these uh, uh, party workers uh, in a per capita sense than others? So I find two sort of deep determinants um, of party worker density. Um, the first, as you mentioned, um, is the population of the settlements. That um, in larger slum settlements um, from below, within the community, residents in larger settlements, um, they have greater incentives to go into slum leadership because there's simply a bigger vote bank um, of residents around them to lead um, and extract you know, these everyday fees that I discussed earlier. Um, and there's a larger vote bank um, to deliver potentially to parties during elections, um, therefore you know, um, attracting more patronage for yourself. And so um, when you go into large slum settlements, there's often this sort of big clamoring, you know, for these party positions and to just become a slum leader itself because the, the goodies that come with being a slum leader in a large settlement are sort of disproportionately greater um, than those in, in smaller slum settlements. Um, from above, um, the party elite in the city, they have to decide how are we going to allocate these party positions to the thousands um, of slum leaders across the city who want them. Um, and these positions are, are scarce and they're coveted. Um, and so in making these decisions over, okay, who's gonna be the ward president of the BJP? 
um, who's going to be the block vice president of the Congress, you know, all the positions that make up the party organization. Um, they too are disproportionately drawn towards large sum settlements because they might not have a clear sense um, over, um, you know, as you go from slum leader to slum leader, how many votes does this person command? But one thing that they do know is um, how big is the settlement in which that slum leader lives? Um, and so slum leaders in larger slum settlements um, tend to uh, disproportionately get these party positions over their counterparts um, in smaller settlements. Um, and so these sort of bottom-up factors and top-down factors related to population um, produce um, much more dense party worker networks in larger settlements than in smaller settlements. Thank you. Uh, thank you for laying out the central argument in such great detail. Let's talk about ethnicity. I thought that was fascinating, the extent of diversity you find in these slums. There often tends to be a kind of mischaracterization of slums as being villages of, uh, uh, of you know, intense segregation along villages and caste lines. But what you do find is there is, uh, you know, a, there is a fair amount of integration in these slums. Uh, also, how does ethnicity play out in, in the claim-making process and in citizen interaction with these intermediaries? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the second factor involved in um, producing this unevenness in party worker density is ethnic diversity. Um, India's ethnic diversity. India's slum settlements are really incredibly diverse um, along the lines of jati. Um, or subcaste along the lines of religion and, the, and along the lines of region of origin or where people have migrated from. Um, so um, I'll just take a second to talk about each of those. Um, so the average settlement in my sample, um, out of these 111 slum settlements that I surveyed for my book, in the average settlements, um, there's an 80% chance um, that if you randomly pick two residents um, coming from the community, living inside the community, that they would be of a different jati. Um, and this is based on a sort of a common measure that social scientists use called the fractionalization index. Um, so this is a really high um, statistic um, that in the average settlements um, that you'd have such high rates of diversity in terms of jati. Um, there's also a high rate in terms of um, uh, religion. Uh, there's about a 20% chance in the average settlements that if you randomly picked uh, two residents that they would be of a different religion. Um, and in my case, this is overwhelmingly driven by Hindus and Muslims living in the same slum settlements, um, you know, living beside one another as, as, as neighbors. Um, and, you know, I find this particularly fascinating um, that in Jaipur and Bhopal, um, you know, these are two cities that experienced sort of significant uh, Hindu-Muslim riots, uh, for instance, in the early 1990s. Um, and I think based on the discourse, we would sort of expect there to be sort of high rates of residential segregation in slum settlements. Um, but even um, along sort of these, these religious lines, you know, the average settlement does have um, representation from both of these religious communities. Uh, the third um, uh, axis of social diversity that I examine in the book is uh, diversity along the lines of region of origin. Um, so where did the migrants come from? Um, the average settlement, um, there's just under a 25% uh, chance that two randomly selected residents um, will have migrated from a different state in India. Um, so most settlements have some degree of regional diversity, you know, that some of the residents may have come from Jaipur or, uh, excuse me, from Rajasthan or Madhya Pradesh, the, the two states, um, you know, in which Jaipur and uh, Bhopal um, are state capitals. Uh, but other residents will come from, you know, Uttar Pradesh, West Bengal, Bihar, uh, Chhattisgarh, Punjab, Maharashtra, um, uh, you know, you'll encounter migrants from Tamil Nadu um, in many of Bhopal's uh, slum settlements. Um, and so there's this really rich sort of regional and linguistic and cultural diversity in many settlements as well. And, you know, one of the primary reasons why you find this kind of um, 
you know, rich diversity in Indian slum settlements. It's really because of a scarcity of, of land for squatting. Um, you know, across any corner of the, the city, there's, you know, th- these narrow plots of land on which, you know, squatters, um, you know, come and set up their, their homes. Um, oftentimes, these are along riverbeds, along mountainsides, next to railroad tracks. Um, and so because of a, a scarcity of land for squatting and the need to be in an area where you can find some kind of employment, this sort of pushes these migrants together um, that are coming from, you know, uh, different states, from different districts, from different villages belonging to different religions, belonging to different uh, caste groups. Um, and so it produces this, these sort of high rates of heterogeneity um, that I find in Jaipur and Bhopal's slum settlements. Um, and so what I find is that um, in those settlements that are more diverse, um, the more ethnically diverse the settlement is, um, the more fragmented its leadership is, um, and the more um, dense its party worker networks are. So interestingly, this is a pathway through which um, ethnic diversity leads to sort of these dense party worker networks, which are advantageous um, for public goods provision. Um, and you know, this, I, I find this to be particularly interesting because you know there's a large literature in political science and economics and sociology um, that finds and argues um, that ethnic heterogeneity can oftentimes undermine uh, local cooperation and developments um, that, you know, groups have different sort of social norms, um, you know, they don't belong to the same uh, social groups. Um, and so they might be less likely to cooperate, um, even when they have shared interests in doing so. Um, I find absolutely no evidence um, in Jaipur and Bhopal slum settlements that ethnic diversity undermines community development at all. Um, in fact, um, through this mechanism, um, I argue in the book um, and find some empirical evidence um, that it, it is positively associated um, with community development through this mechanism of uh, party organization. Right. Um, and would you say that the, the claim-making process fosters uh, uh, cross-caste cooperation and a kind of coalition building, and thus is, you know, by itself a, a favorable societal outcome? Okay, yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question. Um so I find considerable um, inter-ethnic cooperation um, in, in Jaipur and Bhopal slum settlements. Um, and and this, this really manifests itself in, in a number of different ways. Um, the first, I mentioned earlier that many settlements produce these neighborhood associations, these um, kachibasti vikas committees. Um, when you actually look at the letterheads of these um, uh, committees um, or you attend their meetings, uh, you will find them to be um, highly diverse um, with both Hindus and Muslims in many of the communities, different jatis represented, uh, people um, who had migrated from different states all sitting on these committees together. Um, the one sort of um, most conspicuous um, element of underrepresentation in these committees, though, is, is women. Um, women tend to be dramatically underrepresented um, among sort of the, the ranks of slum leaders and party workers. Um, and membership on these neighborhood associations. Um, so, you know, that's one, that's one sort of um, example of sort of significant, you know, inter-ethnic cooperation. Um, others are, are sort of everyday, um, you know, residents living in the same communities, um, belonging to these different social groups um, that find, you know, immediate interests to collectively act with one another to do a range of things. Um, sometimes this collective action um, takes the form of, a group of 20 or 30 residents, again, coming from all these different social backgrounds, getting together to go to the local bureaucrat um, or a local politician um, to show that they, you know, there's a group of voters um, and they are demanding, um, you know, water or pave roads or, you know, people to come and clean out the drains in the settlements um, or to fight against eviction. Um, so you'll oftentimes see sort of significant um, ethnic diversity um, in terms of those acts of claim making. Um, you'll also see groups coming together in settlements to do things, you know, internally, um, collecting money um, to pave over potholes or replace a water tap. Um, these two um, exhibit, you know, significant uh, cooperation, you know, across, um, you know, religious and caste and regional lines. Uh, third, um, and drawing on some of the, my more recent research with um, uh, Professor Tarek Tachel, um, we find that um, it's, it's quite common. Um, it's actually more common than not um, that uh, slum leaders who are of a particular caste and religious group 
um, will uh, provide services and help residents um, of you know different backgrounds as themselves. And so what this what this does is it creates these you know really fascinating and novel political networks that cut across lines of religion, cut across lines of uh, caste um, and region of origin um, in ways that you know are I think you know really sort of take a different shape um, than than what they do in um, in rural India, um, and that's largely because of these sort of you know really novel new social spaces created through the migration process. Right. I'm I'm curious what you think about uh, the solution in the longer term. Do you view the emergence of these intermediaries as a kind of benign democratization, or in the longer term, do you think this in fact keeps out the former state? And um, do you think there's an incentive to also keep these slums in a liminal state and not formalize these settlements? Yeah, um, yeah. So there's a really great question around, you know, what what are the limits to this politics? You know, I argue in the book that these, you know, these uh, party worker networks um, within slum settlements, you know, do have their advantages um, in terms of being able to um, secure public services from the state. Um, but there are most certainly um, powerful limits to what this can produce. Um, so I outline a number of these in the book. I mean, so first and foremost, you know, we would hope for a politics that is is more programmatic, um, that does not rely on sort of discretion um, and intermediaries um, that, you know, if you're eligible for a particular, you know, program um, or um, a developmental good, um, that you'll sort of receive it without having to turn to intermediaries, without having to turn to politics. Um, So that, of course, is, you know, an important um, sort of, you know, larger uh, frame, you know, in which to interpret um, the findings of the book. Um, Another limitation is, I found very few examples of meaningful intersettlement organization in Jaipur and Bhopal. So you can imagine that there would be a lot of room for um, settlements to link up with one another, to organize, to increase their sort of population numbers and demand things, um, you know, from the municipal government and the state government in particular um, as a larger sort of class um, in the city. Um, but uh, quite quite the opposite, you know, the the claim making and the leadership and the networks that I document in the book are highly fragmented along settlement lines. Um, it really wasn't, um, it really hasn't been since the 1960s and 70s, for instance, in Bhopal, um, where there was substantial intersettlement organization um, along the lines of class. Um, and this was largely being spearheaded um, by the Communist Party um, in Bhopal that was much more active then, um, uh, led by um, a, a trade union leader, uh, Shakir Ali Khan, um, who is you know, still very famous in Bhopal um, in some settlements today for, for engaging in these organizational efforts. Um, but uh, you know, much of that effort sort of um, disintegrated, essentially, in the 1980s. Um, and you know, largely the picture you know, within the last 20, 30 years has been sort of uh, individual settlements organizing for themselves, um, producing leadership, connecting to larger party organizations in the city, but this not necessarily translating into sort of deeper class-based organization uh, for, for change um, in the cities. Another, another real um, you know, limitation to this politics um, is that to a politician, to an elected representative, um, so your ward counselor, um, to your MLA, to your MP, uh, to other sort of uh, leaders of party organizations in the cities, they have interests um, in not providing um, land titles, to not providing formal property rights to slum dwellers. Um, and in you know a handfuls of interviews um, that I did with uh, political elites in the two cities, you know they were quite frank in, in sort of um, you know laying this out that a absence of property rights um, creates some degree of dependency. Um, in terms of, you know, ensuring that um, residents of, of, of slum settlements come out and vote. Um, that if you extend, you know, land titles to, um, you know, residents of these communities, that they're going to, quote, you know, become more like the middle classes. Um, they're not going to be the sort of the kingmakers anymore because they'll have fewer reasons to vote. Um, and so, you know, the vast majority of settlements in my sample um, are completely absent of any formal property rights. Um, and so the the looming threat of eviction, you know, continues uh, for residents of these communities um, in large part because it's politically expedient 
um, for sort of those in power in, in the city to sort of keep them in limbo. Um, and so, yeah, there, there are a number of, you know, these larger structural, um, you know, inequalities in India's cities um, and, and processes of marginalization um, that, you know, dramatically limit, you know, what are the possibilities of, of this kind of political organization um, that, I, that I outline in the book. Right. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what you see as implications uh, of this for urban policy? You uh, in the book you talk about how there's you know there's an in- there's an increased thrust towards community-driven development programs, and there's a very direct implication there. Yeah, so I, I spend um, a considerable amount of time, particularly in the conclusion of the book, uh, trying to reflect on you know what are what are the lessons of this study for um, community um, development efforts um, in India's cities. Um, there's a a large, you know, literature um, on community-driven development and participatory developments um, that really outlines, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, um, this sort of widespread proliferation um, of development uh, programs throughout the global South. And this is not uh, certainly not limited to India, that at least on paper, um, stress um, the importance of local participation, um, that people in communities um, should be much closer to the developmental process um, in terms of articulating their their needs and interests. You know, being involved in deciding you know how local budgets will be spent. Um, sometimes participating in actually sort of you know constructing something. Um, you know that the hopes of this would be sort of boosting accountability. It's bringing um, communities closer um, in theory to those that are sort of overseeing uh, these development projects. Um, it better taps into local knowledge. Um, there's sort of a number of, of you know, um, theoretical promises um, that participation and decentralization and sort of local um, community-driven developments, um, you know, should yield. Um, so one manifestation of this um, in the urban India context um, that was really at its height during much of my fieldwork in the early 2010s was Rajiv Awasiojana, so, you know, Rajiv's housing scheme. Um and if you read through the Rajiv Awasiyojana documents, you know, much of this was sort of targeted at slum settlements, um, outlying a process in which um, settlements can be developed either in situ, meaning uh, sort of on the land in which there currently exists, um, or potentially sort of resettlement elsewhere in the city. Um, in both Jaipur and Bhopal, you can sort of see these um, multi-story apartment buildings going up um, that are supposed to house um uh, essentially evicted uh, slum residents who will be moved into these sort of high-rise apartments. Um, and th- that, of course, is another sort of um, related um, and important sort of subject, um, you know, for, for, for study and for policymakers, um, as many sort of residents of these communities um, are not thrilled at the thought of sort of moving far away into these multi-story apartment buildings. Um, but uh, to get back to sort of the immediate question around uh, the the policy implications um, of, of the book itself. If you read through the Rajiva Wasiojana documents, um, particularly the one around participatory planning, um, you'll read that um, local um, NGOs and municipal governments um, should attempt to circumvent um, sort of local political actors uh, residing in these settlements, um, and that every settlement should create a community-based organization, um, and it should essentially be apolitical. So what this is really calling for is that, um, a, a, you know, a complete, um, you know, circumventing of the very actors at the center of, of my books, you know, sort of, you know, theory and empirics, um, you know, these slum leaders who emerge within settlements again, you know, based on the support of residents, um, you know, it's important to not over-romanticize them. You know, they are getting these sort of material benefits that I had discussed earlier. Uh, but many of them, um, if not a, you know, a majority of them, you know, uh, enjoy some degree of legitimacy from residents because their sort of informal authority in the community is underpinned by them being able to get things done. Um, and so the thought of sort of pushing aside these actors or trying to circumvent them to create something that's apolitical um, seems quite short-sighted um, and also sort of not feasible. Um, you know, development projects and programs, you know, things like Rajiva Wasiojana, they're going to come and go. But the sort of everyday quotidian efforts of residents to organize and demand services, 
um, to demand recognition um, in the city. You know, these are the processes that produce, you know, this leadership that's going to far outlast, you know, sort of any, you know, one bounded, um, you know, development intervention. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, for policy makers and practitioners, um, you know, focused on development in India's uh, slum settlements, I think, uh, you know, a nuanced awareness of, you know, who these slum leaders are, how they emerge, how they connect to political parties, how they operate, and how they sort of get things done for residents is absolutely central to designing, you know, any of these projects or programs. Um, otherwise, you're sort of trying to create, you know, something that's sort of artificial and, and unlikely to sort of gain deeper traction um, within the community itself. Lastly, I must ask you this. We're in the middle of um, uh, the national lockdown in India in the wake of the global pandemic. Um, it's July as we record this. And uh, would you say that your findings have any implications for uh, this present situation as it's being experienced in these slum settlements? So, of course, the you know the current pressing question um, at hand now is... Um, you know, issues around the pandemic um, and India's lockdown. Um, India's slum settlements are oftentimes, you know, in, in recent media accounts at least, you know, painted as uh, sitting duck hotspots uh, for the spread of, of the coronavirus. You know, that these are incredibly densely populated areas, um, not only in terms of, you know, the houses being tightly clustered together, you know, with very narrow alleyways, but even within households, you know, where you have families of five, six, seven people residing in, you know, one or two rooms. Where the idea of social distancing um, and quarantining yourself is is just simply not a possibility for many people. Um, so, in addition to that, to you know, um, in many settlements, deficiencies in water provision, um, intermittency in water delivery, um, lack of you know basic sanitation. Um, that you know all these sort of create um, you know lots of concerning um, you know points around uh, um, contagion. On the economic side, you know, as we know, the vast majority of people residing in, in some settlements uh, work in India's informal economy. Um, they have very little savings. They have very little job protection. Um, if you don't show up on the work site that day, um, if you don't go out in your auto rickshaw, you know, if you don't go um, and set up um, your, you know, um, roadside stand, um, that you're not going to get paid that day. Um, and so, you know, the lockdown um, in India, which is considered to be one of the most stringent on earth, um, had sort of, you know, obvious and real um, uh, economic costs uh, to, to residents in these communities. So there, there are lots of, you know, causes, um, you know, for, for concern within, the, in, in, within India's slum settlements. So, you know, there's been a lot of immediate, you know, media attention on slum settlements, you know, in particular Dharavi, um, you know, um, what is often considered to be, you know, Asia's largest slum in Mumbai. Um, but, you know, in, in reading through these accounts, um, myself and uh, my co-author, um, Tarek Tachal, were oftentimes um, sort of uh, unsatisfied with the fact that many of these accounts of slum settlements basically um, paints them in an organizationally flat way, you know, that there isn't leadership, that there is no sort of forms of collective action or efforts within these communities uh, to mitigate some of the, um, the risks um, of uh, both the pandemic and the efforts to stop the, to stop the spread of, of the disease. Um, and so what we did was um, we had conducted a survey with um, 630 slum leaders um, a few years ago. Um, and we returned to the 630 slum leaders um, in April and May, you know, this year, really at the height of India's lockdown, to get an understanding of just this, that we know under in regular times, that slum leaders really are, you know, the tip of the spear um, in, in getting things done in their communities. So what, if anything, are they doing during the lockdown um, to, to soften the blow of, you know, of the lockdown, to slow the spread of the virus? Um, and so uh, we were able to contact um, over 50% um, of our originally uh, surveyed slum leaders. We interviewed them over the phone. Um, and found that they're very much uh, continue, continuing in their problem-solving activities during the pandemic. Um, much of these activities, though, have pivoted away from demanding things like infrastructure and public services to um, asking for um, food rations in particular. Um, so that sort of the absolute most immediate you know, necessities um, that residents need um, to, to survive um, during this period. 
Um, we also found that they're, you know, still very much drawing on their political networks, um, you know, that of course predate the the pandemic. Um, and, you know, while this is important to understand in terms of, you know, these are the pathways that they're being able to communicate with those in power and ask for things, um, it does bring up concerns around sort of partisan bias um, and the allocation um, of, you know, food rations um, and other sort of uh, government relief uh, programs. Um, and we also found that uh, pre-pandemic levels of infrastructural development, particularly water, um, really looms large in, in fragmenting the experience um, of social distancing in these communities. Um, but in, in many slum settlements, um, residents don't have water taps within their houses themselves. Um, they have to go to a shared tap. Um, you know, sometimes that's a hand pump. Sometimes that's a, a bore well um, with a large tank. Sometimes it's a truck fed uh, tank, you know, where a truck needs to come to the community every day to fill it up with, with water. Um, you know, we know that much of this water delivery is, is highly um, un, uh, intermittent. Um, that's, you know, sometimes the water will come at, you know, 9 a.m. Sometimes it will come at 11 a.m. Sometimes it will come in the afternoon. Sometimes it might not come at all that day. Um, and so this uncertainty around when water is going to be delivered um, and the fact that it's in public spaces, you know, oftentimes, you know, with very little room, um, this sort of forces residents to crowd around those sort of taps um, and have to wait around, you know, for water. Um, and so we find, um, you know, some association between the percentage um, of households that have water taps um, and um, the extent to which uh, our surveyed slum leaders state um, that social distancing is a problem in their settlements. So basically, you know, the higher, the more um, residents have um, household level taps, um, the, the lower the chances are that the slum leaders uh, reported um, that social distancing was a was a problem in their in their community. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, this is really a, a pressing sort of area of of research um, and you know, creative uh, you know policy making right now. Thank you, and that brings us to the traditional last question. We'd love to hear about what you've been working on since the book and what's currently on your research agenda. Yeah, now that um, uh, my first book is sort of out, um, Demanding Development, um, it's been exciting to pivot to um, some new projects, uh, some of which are, are very much related to, um, you know, themes of urban informality and uh, political organization. Um, and some are sort of quite different, um, taking me outside of India's cities altogether. Um, the most closely related project um, to my book um, is one that I'm conducting with, with Tarek Dachal, um, we have a book that we're finishing up right now, uh, tentatively titled Migrants and Machines, um, How Party, Party Organizations Form in an Urbanizing India. Again, a, a tentative title. Um, but the book very much delves even deeper into the construction of the political networks really at the heart of, of my book. Um, how are they constructed anew um, in India, sort of rapidly expanding cities? Um, a second project of mine is going to take me, you know, very far away from India cities. Um, I'm hoping to do this uh, field work for this project in southern Madhya Pradesh, uh, particularly in Hoshangabad district, um, is on India's 2006 Forest Rights Act. Um, and that book is sort of, or that, that book project um, is very motivated by questions around, you know, why is it um, that, you know, as you go across villages, as you go across districts um, in India's, central India's sort of tribal belts, um, in, in the most forested areas in India, that some forest dwellers, you know, many of whom are Adivasi or, or tribal, um, uh, tribal individuals, um, or other forest dwelling caste groups, why some of them have been successful in being able to claim a land title um, either individually for their households or for their community through the Forest Rights Act, while others have failed. Um, you know, this is a, a fundamental sort of uh, reshifting of, of property rights and the relationship between citizens and the states um, in those areas um, of India's forest lands um, that have been provided uh, land titles. Um, and so um, I'll be examining sort of how the provision of these titles um, in those areas where they've been provided um, have changed the relationship between, um, you know, forest dwelling groups um, and in particular the forest department, um, which is the most sort of pervasive face of the state, um, you know, in these areas. So, you know, that would be sort of continu continuing on sort of themes of, um, you know, informality and property rights, 
um, but very much sort of, again, leaving the cities um, and going into, um, you know, India's most heavily sort of forested areas uh, to understand uh, these changes in property rights and citizenship practice. Wonderful. Um, both the book projects on migrants and on forest rights sound really exciting, and I look forward to following your research. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on this episode, Adam. Thank you so much.